This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. It is Friday, June 24th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we'll take a look at the Angels. Did they fix everything by firing Joe Madden? Mm, spoiler alert, no, they didn't. But we'll talk about some recent developments, including the demotion of Reed Detmers, the season-ending injury to Anthony Rendon, and the latest feats of Shohei Otani. We'll get into some recent debuts and promotions and a few other demotions as well. We saw a minor trade go down this week sending Willie Calhoun to San Francisco, and Keith has an updated mock draft, so we'll dig into that a little bit over the course of this show as well. Keith, let's start with the Angels, and I think the common refrain with the Angels is they don't have enough pitching, and in my mind, that made Reed Detmers a really important young pitcher for them this year, and here we sit on June 23rd, Reed Detmers heading back to the minor leagues. What went wrong? This is a guy that actually threw a no-hitter earlier this season and just... A month and a half later, here we are. He's back at Salt Lake. Yeah, the number one thing I see with him, this is a guy who had really pretty incredible command as an amateur. Uh, was said to you know, best command in his draft class. People talking about him having 60, which would be plus command right then, not projecting to get there. But this was a guy who could pretty much put the ball where he wanted to put it. And that is absolutely not happening in the majors. Uh, Never mind command. I'm not even sure he has average control at this point, uh, which is incredibly disappointing because again, certainly something never really anticipated that he would have issues just flat out throwing enough strikes, but that's definitely been the case Um, because his stuff is good, but it is certainly not elite. His stuff was, uh, the idea was always that his stuff was really going to play up because he could really locate it because he had a good feel to pitch because there were some secondary characteristics on some of the pitches that uh, would help them play up maybe a little bit above their, say their velocity. But ultimately this guy's, he's, he's got to throw strikes. He's got to throw, he's got to throw more strikes. He's got to throw better strikes. And it is kind of shocking to me. I mean, I thought he was going to, thought he was a pretty good breakout candidate for this year because the stuff was good enough. And it's, hey, well, you know what? Last year, first time through the league, right? Gonna every first time in the big leagues, first time facing that low level of competition, fine. But then guys will make adjustments at that point, and he has not actually. Yeah, I know he threw the no-hitter, obviously. I guess you could say, well, his walk rate's a little bit better this year. It's still not good. 9%, that's not him. There are pitchers who can get away with a 9% walk rate. He ain't one. Usually you miss a lot more bats if you're going to walk guys at a clip like that. And yeah, Reed Detmers, only 44 strikeouts in 58 innings so far this season with the Angels. 11 home runs, too. I mean, I think that's been the biggest surprise. Four in his last couple of starts. I think I was more surprised that they demoted him just because I'm not quite sure where they go instead. I still look at this team and wonder if he's not their best option as the fifth starter. They're obviously going to try and turn to their depth, something they've really lacked. Yeah, I was going to say, what depth? If you find it, will you let me know? Well, I think they're stretching Mike Myers out in the minors right now. So he might come up and and serve as a four or five inning guy, which is a path that I didn't really see him going down. 
that guy doesn't hasn't done anything good since Austin Powers, so I don't <laughs> really know what the plan is. That movie has uh, has been out for a long time. I'm I'm feeling very old. Hasn't really aged that well either. That was kind of like my my teenage years, like when that movie came out, right? So I, I revisit movies from that era sometimes. A lot of them do not hold up particularly well, and I would say Austin Powers, unfortunately, is one that does not hold up very well. Uh, other Angels matters. Anthony Rendon, his season-ending injury, it's yet another disappointing turn in his tenure with this franchise. And the reaction, the public reaction to a player with a large contract getting hurt, it always makes me angry because I don't, I don't think any player enjoys being hurt ever. And I think someone who's cashed in free agency is not just trying to coast. They're trying to deliver. They're trying to continue to do the thing that got them there in the first place. And I, I just think that's lost on some corners of the, the trolling part of the internet. Rendon was an amazingly productive player mm-hmm. with the Nationals who earned five times what the Nationals paid him during the years he was there. If you look at the Fangraph's earn values compared to the actual salaries he was paid, And then, of course, with all the time he's missed so far with the Angels, he's underperformed the large contract he signed as a free agent. To me, if you are upset about that, you should be upset about the structure and how players are paid and when they're paid more than being frustrated with players on the wrong side of 30 having their body break down and costing them time after they sign a big contract. Yeah, there is a strong sense of sort of fan entitlement as if it's the fans money. You know, just pro tip, it's not actually your money that's being paid to these players. Also, as you pointed out there, most major league players, good major league players are extremely underpaid before they get to free agency. And if they are overpaid relative to their production after they hit free agency, I don't really have any problem with that. We might argue then that in some cases it is not worth continuing to give that player playing time. His salary should not justify how much he gets to play. His production should be the only variable in determining how much he gets to play. But that's a separate consideration. But I am not going to get upset on the Angels' behalf if it turns out their investment in Anthony Rendon, which nobody criticized at the time. Anthony Rendon was an MVP caliber player. And I still think if he can get – he's losing some basically the last of his prime years at this point, which stinks. But if he gets – completely healthy for next year. I still think he can be an MVP type of player for them, but I am not going to, like I said, I'm not going to shed any tears for them and nor am I going to change my evaluation of the contract in hindsight. Nobody thought this guy was going to start to suffer these season ending injuries, right? He'd been banged up a bit uh, even when he was the national, but he was always really good when he played and generally played a lot when he was with the Nationals. So this this is all completely unexpected. I don't think anyone could have foreseen this. I don't blame the Angels at all. And But I, I also don't think it is remotely fair to criticize Anthony Rendon. I don't, think, I don't even like the idea of criticizing players as if they're not trying, right? Players who aren't producing, most of the time, they're still trying. There are a few exceptions. I have some questions about certain very, very small number of guys maybe who just get the big payday and decide, no, nah, I'm going to mail it in the rest of the way. But I think that's an extremely small minority of players. Most of these guys are really competitive. They really want to do well. And they you know, sometimes the ability just isn't there. Sometimes the body isn't willing. To turn that into some kind of personal criticism is... It, I, my fandom has never gone there. And even though I'm not so much a fan of teams now as just a fan of players, still, I don't, I don't look at it that way. I don't think the players necessarily owe me anything. 
No, I definitely liked the move for the Angels when they did it because I thought Rendon had the type of profile as a hitter that would age exceptionally well, good patience, tons of balls in play, enough hard contact to hit for good power for the first half of the deal and then to still be a productive everyday guy. Plus, he's a great defender at third base. And I thought the the injury concerns, a lot of which came even before he was drafted, right? I think one of the reasons Anthony Rendon didn't go 1-1 in his draft was injuries that happened during his time at Rice. That seemed like that kind of faded over his time with the Nationals. He kind of become a lot more durable than people had expected. So I don't think there was anything predictive in past injuries that were a decade ago. I don't think the Angels were wrong for signing him. I think the problem with the Angels across the board, I was someone that really liked this team coming into the season. I thought there was a chance they could win the division and actually flip the script a bit in the AL West. I thought to do it, they had to stay healthy. And especially if they were going to deal with injuries, it couldn't be players like Otani or Trout or Rendon because it's a star-driven roster. When you have players that you expect to be five-plus win players and you lose them for a significant portion of time, if your depth is below average, and I think the Angels' depth is pretty fairly below average, things are going to go wrong. And that's exactly where we sit right now. I mean, you look at their depth chart right now, Matt Duffy is playing a lot. Luis Renjifo is playing a lot. Andrew Velasquez is playing a lot. It's okay if you have one of those guys playing on a regular basis, but having three of those guys playing around your infield on a day-to-day basis, that ends up being a problem. And then we're still talking about a team that has, to this point, been league average in terms of its overall pitching staff, but I think it's still a little top-heavy there as well, where they've got an A group of relievers that are good when they're ahead and kind of a mediocre amount of bullpen depth. So I just think they're in a tough spot. I don't know what Perry Manassian should actually do with this roster as the trade deadline approaches next month. Yeah, it's they're in. And the problem is, even if they were close, right, they would be in a difficult spot. If we looked at them and said, hey, this club is very, you know, I don't know, 40% likely. I actually don't know what their playoff odds are at this very moment. But right now, it's probably hard to look at them, especially knowing, okay, now you're not getting anything from Rendon the rest of the way. They're rotation is kind of a mess again it's actually funny they're actually they've still outscored their opponents on the season but they're four games under 500 they are 13 out of first place they are three uh, they are in i don't know 18th place in the league right now for a playoff spot it's not good even if they were closer they don't have a ton to trade a lot of their better prospects have gotten off to pretty rough starts in the minors and so and those were prospects who were all kind of hey this guy's good if oh well if he produces this year we'll believe a little bit more in the physical abilities etc not not a, that's just not the situation they're in i don't think anybody there from ownership on down wants to say well it's another lost season we just got to build back else can you do though they can't solve the rotation problems and they're not going to go get a random replacement and I will see, by the way, just on, to continue on that point, the one criticism I think most folks on the outside had of the Rendon signing was that he wasn't a pitcher. Great player. No problem giving him that contract. What they really needed was another starting pitcher, and they didn't get it. And that's this just this is the problem the Angels have been in for 10 years. They didn't develop pitching. They have not successfully signed pitching. Most often, they've just missed on those guys. And... They have not really traded for pitching. And that's the same situation they're in right now, where you look at this team and say, how could I say this team is going to be, say, you know, several games above 500 the rest of the way with the pitching staff that they currently have? I don't. I don't think that's likely. 
Evan Drellick had a story that went up on The Athletic today. The Angels are one of five teams, along with the Marlins, the A's, the Reds, and the Brewers, that are still not paying players at extended spring training. And this is a relative, relatively recent change league-wide for those players to get paid. And I think it's yet another example. There's a lot of examples of the Angels cutting corners in places where it really matters, right? I think on the, the big league field, you see the stars. And you think, oh, they spend a lot of money on payroll and they've got superstars. So what's really wrong? And I think part of the reason they don't develop players as well as they should, part of the reason they don't find enough talent is because they don't invest enough in the organization. I think that is ultimately the problem. It's it's like a piece of furniture that that looks nice, but is particle board. You get close to it and you pick it up. <laughs> this is actually garbage. It looks okay from the other side of the room. Ikea is never going to sponsor this podcast now. It's really too bad that we're going to miss out on that. Playoff odds, by the way, according to Fangraph, sit at 15% for the Angels. And I think if I were forced to make the decision, I'd say with Otani and Trout, I think you have to keep trying to find ways to get better. They're just not going to be able to go out and get the best of the best players available because they don't have enough trade chips to move to compete for those players. So they're going to be very creative for the types of players they get. But Think about last trade deadline. How many people got excited when the Yankees acquired Clay Holmes? No, right? If you can find a way to make a couple moves like that to then execute, you need to have the analytics department and coaching and all the pieces to take the player that wasn't doing something right and fix him quickly. And I don't think the Angels have that. So it seems like wishful thinking uh, on the part of someone who just wants to be right about a silly prediction made three months ago. If you're an Angels fan, I understand why you're frustrated because you should be a perennial playoff contender right now. And it feels like you're still one step away from that despite uh, continued attempts to not be that. Let's move on to some recent debuts and promotions. And by the way, if you like rookie talk and you like stat cast talk, the Keith Law Show this week, Sarah Langs was the guest. You did a good job just digging into a lot of the rookie class players and, and how exceptional some of these guys are. Julio Rodriguez, Bobby Witt Jr. among the players that were discussed. Uh, Riley Green is actually up for the Tigers now. He got called up since the last time you and I spoke. And I know we talked a lot about the Tigers last week. And I will apologize to the contingent of Tigers Twitter that wants Al Avila, the GM, to be let go. I understand the frustration. I'm, you saw that comment. I'm sorry for not calling that out. I just think that's where they're at right now if things don't go well. I thought that was implied by the general nature of the conversation. But if they play well between now and September, you might not get your wish, Tigers fans. Riley Green, though, what does he bring to the table? And what do you expect here in the short term, especially as he sees big league pitching for the first time? You know, I think we've one of the themes from my conversation with Sarah, from you and I talking about our overreaction theater we don't really know what these guys are going to do the moment they come up to the big leagues. I will say I'm a huge Riley Green fan, and I liked him in the draft, and he has only grown on me since he got into pro ball. I think he's certainly a much better outfielder than I realized um, when he was first drafted. I remember seeing him in high school and thinking, guy's going to end up in left field, or he didn't, he didn't even look very good out there. Now he's turned himself into, I think, at least a capable center fielder. If you have Derek Hill kicking around, you probably aren't putting Riley Green in center, but could I think Riley Green could play center four. Somebody, at least. Uh, but his calling, his carrying tool, I should say, it's the bat. And I mean specifically the hit tool. I think he's going to get to power. But I really believe he is going to hit. I think he's going to hit for average. I think he's going to get on base at a pretty good clip. Obviously, he, he uh, 
you know, so far in his very, very brief time in the majors, right? Isn't he walking a quarter of the time? Yep. Very patient early on. Yes, which is crazy. Okay, I'm going to go on out on a limb and say he's not going to maintain that 524 on base percentage for the rest of the season. But it is nice to see, right? It's really good to see him doing that. He is not forcing things. He did not come to the majors and try to hit the proverbial five-run homer on every pitch that he's seen. That's a great early sign. My guess is the rest of the season, we see a very strong walk rate for a rookie. He continues to make contact at a good rate. Power starts to grow over the course of the year. He is still only 21. He, will be tw- he won't turn 22 until the very end of September. I think that's the second to last week of the uh, Major League regular season. I would not be surprised if his power output this year was just fine. Right, a dozen or so homers, maybe fifteen the rest of the way. I'd actually probably be on the high side, I guess. But that at some point, a couple of years from now, he's a thirty homer guy. I think he gets there. I don't know that he gets there immediately, and that's fine. If he continues to show this kind of, you know, in a four games, but if he continues to show this kind of approach, this kind of patience, this kind of just even basic ball strike recognition is great to see in somebody coming up to the majors because it is like you know you and i talk about this at least every other week i would say the jump from the minors to the majors feels at least anecdotally like it is as big as it's ever been i think some of that is the quality of playing the majors is just that good and i think some of that is that the um the contraction of minor league uh, of the minor leagues and the elimination of the short seasons uh, during the pandemic has just kind of eroded the quality of play in the remaining minor leagues as well. So there's a lot of factors going into it, but um, I like what I see from Riley Green. How could you not? And I remain very, very high on him long term. Definitely another reason to keep tuning in to Tigers games if you are a frustrated Tigers fan now that he is up. I've said this before, I still think Spencer Torkelson. The second half is going to look better than the first half. I like the way he's not chasing a ton of pitches outside the zone. That just bodes really well for things settling in a bit here in the months ahead for him. But uh, some other rookies that have been recently promoted. Lennon Sosa just got the call Thursday morning, I believe, from the White Sox. And he took a huge step forward at Double A this season. He was hitting 331, 384, 549 with 14 homers in 62 games. He finished the 2021 season with Birmingham, played just over 30 games there a season ago. So he still doesn't need to spend a full year at that level. Something is different about him this year. And we've seen a handful of players make the leap from AA this season. Michael Harris in Atlanta among them. And so far, Harris has held his own making the adjustments. What do you think Sosa can do for this White Sox team? Yeah, we should talk about Harris. At least Sarah and I talked a little bit about him in the, you know, some of the underlying data behind this hot start for Harris had me just pumping the brakes just a little bit on that one. Sosa, the one thing that's really interesting is just the dramatically cutting the strikeout rate from one year to the next. Now, he got a cup of coffee. He spent about a month, maybe five weeks or so in AA to finish last season. But you know, the biggest question with him, what he was, he, he could play shortstop. He's got some power. Um, but he was just like allergic to base on to the base on balls last year. And the fact that he seems to have really just completely turned around the approach where he has 16 walks all of last season in 115 games. He had 20 in 62 games in so far this year and cut the strikeout rate. If this is a real like sustainable change 
in his approach, if the White Sox, obviously they're aware of it too, got to him with him and said, okay, here's what you need to work. You want to be a successful major league player. These are the things you need to do. This is what you need to work on. And he responded to that. Great. That's, I would, I would absolutely buy it. I think he's got a chance to be at least a solid average regular because he can play short. Now, obviously he may not play short for the White Sox, but power's real. He was up to, again, he also passed his home run total from last year, 11 in last year, 14 already this year. There's a lot to like here. You know, I only I've ranked him quite low in my White Sox rankings. I was just waiting for the file to load here. I had 19th in my White Sox uh, system. And the White Sox did not have a very good system either, so that's pretty low. But it was just because what do you do with a guy who walks basically once every two weeks? There are not many of them who turn out to be successful big league players. You also certainly should never forecast a guy who is doing that to suddenly increase his walk rate by. 100% or more. But if he's really done that, and if he's going to hold that, hell yeah. I mean, he should have, not that I would do this, but if I were to go back and revise, I'd say he should probably be top five in the system. Really and encouraging. So, honestly, doing that in, well, this is in April. When did we do our overreaction theater episode? Is that like late April, early May? Yeah, the full one was then, yeah. So we've played, he's played more than a third of a minor league season, closing in on a half. And to do that in half a season, it's not definitive, but it feels a lot better than, oh, hey, it's we're three weeks into the minor league season and so-and-so's doubled his walk rate. Okay, right? Who knows? He could have faced Jason Nabergall a couple of times. <laughs> if you don't know who Jason Nabergall is, go look up his baseball reference page. Um, just make sure you're sitting down first. Always be sure to sit comfortably when uh, looking at the baseball reference pages that are suggested on our show. <laughs> Let's talk about Michael Harris just for a moment because I, I think the the at a glance thing that jumps off the page to me is the O swing percentage. It's I was talking about Spencer Torkelson making good decisions, not chasing a lot of pitches outside the zone. Even though Michael Harris is producing, even though I think Michael Harris is very toolsy and will be a very good player for a long time, it's mm-hmm. very difficult to swing at balls outside the zone forty three point five percent of the time and be a productive big leaguer. And especially if you're not drawing walks. But I'm also not going to sit here and say in his first 24 games, Michael Harris has told us everything we need to know about how much he's going to walk as a big league hitter. So are those the warts that that you see that could present some short-term drops in his production? Or is there something else that you see with Harris that also gives you some pause? Yeah, that's really it. It's that there's he's swinging way too much. He's just swinging too much, period. And that is particularly true out of the zone. He's chasing a ton. And he's just kind of not been, for lack of a better word, penalized for that, right? That has not shown up in the superficial, I guess we should call sort of the first order stats, the batting average, the on-base percentage, the slugging percentage, the stuff that most people look at. But you cannot continue to chase at this level with impunity, not in the major leagues, because people figure it out, right? And suddenly you don't see so many strikes. And if you don't stop chasing then you're going to strike out a lot or just have a lot of really low quality contact. I am with you. Michael Harris was on my top 100. I think Michael Harris is a really good prospect. I will also point out Michael Harris, basically this week last year, I think it was when I saw him with Rome, they came through Wilmington and I wrote, man, this guy can't pick up a breaking ball to save his life. He was just basically just hitting fastballs. And the moment anybody threw anything out of the zone to him, that with span or change up, whatever, he just had he had a huge trouble. Even in zone, he was guessing 
and often guessing incorrectly. And within two or three weeks after that, if not even sooner after that, though, he really started to show actual tangible in-game improvement on his recognition of off-speed pitches. And his walk rate the rest of the way was much better. His pitch data was much better for the second half of the minor league season. He has shown the capacity to make adjustments. Talking about what he is doing wrong so far in the majors is not tantamount to saying he's not going to make those adjustments. He will. I very strongly believe he will make those adjustments. I am also saying he needs to make those adjustments to be the player that you and I both agree that he's going to be. He is too young and too talented physically with a history of making adjustments for us to act like this is some kind of long-term problem. I'm saying this is step one. Now pitchers are going to... You and I see this data. Major League teams see this data too. They all know what's going on. Look for Michael Harris to see a lot more pitches out of the zone, teams to get him to chase, and for Atlanta to have to sit down with him or he'll figure it out on his own and say, okay, they got here's the book on you. It's on you to make that adjustment. I, I think he will, but that is that is coming. I think that's absolutely inevitable. The K rate will go up from 23.1% where it is right now if he continues to swing at pitches outside the zone this much. I don't think he'll continue to swing at pitches outside the zone this much as we flip the calendar ahead to 2023, but it might just be a bit of a bumpy road as we try and, and make our way there with Michael Harris, despite the early success, which is great. It's great to see a player come up and make the leap from double A and be very productive. We talked a little bit about the Rays on the 3-0 show yesterday because they have had a lot of injuries to a lot of important players so far, and they're still right there in the thick of things with the the three teams behind the Yankees and the ALE still have the kind of record you'd expect for a team that expects to play in the postseason. So they've really weathered the storm pretty well, but their depth is going to be tested going forward. It looks like Josh Lowe is going to have a more prominent role uh, thanks to the unfortunate injury to Manuel Marco. Josh Lowe really had nothing left to prove at AAA, Keith. There's always been a lot of swing and miss in his game, but he draws walks, he has power, has speed, and he can play a good center field. Is it going to work this time? Is there any reason to believe that, that Josh Lowe can't figure out big league pitching with a prolonged opportunity to do that in front of him? No, I don't think so. I'm also a huge Josh Lowe fan. We're talking about a lot of really great prospects here. Uh, maybe at some point we should talk about some terrible prospects just to provide some balance. I don't know. Readers can let us know how they feel about that. Um, no, I am not worried. Obviously, you know, Lowe's first go-round in the majors this year was not great. Uh, you know, he did seem a bit overmatched. He seemed a bit overmatched, actually, on a lot of fastballs, which was not great to see. I also don't have any concerns about his ability to hit a fastball, though. I think it was more just not picking up pitches well, as opposed to, say, a guy who maybe just lacks bat speed and therefore will not be able to hit major league pitching, um, would not be able to hit major league fastballs with everybody throwing as hard as they do. I don't think it's that. And Lowe has some history of showing patience, too, and is showing improvements in patience, and improvements in pitch recognition as he's moved up. He just might be a slower developer, but I think... That's in there, potentially. I think there is power in there now that will help him provide some value, even if, say, he is a sub-300 on-base guy the rest of this season while he continues to develop. I also think there's quite a bit of defensive value that he can provide. Um, he's, a re he's a very good center fielder. He should be very good playing in an outfield corner if he's given enough time there. Based on what little we saw earlier this year, even if it's just the – even if you throw out what happens, say, what's he going to be like the rest of the way? 
yeah, maybe it's a 290 on base. But with power and defense, he should be able to help the club. Maybe he makes the adjustment sooner, but I don't like I, I really try to shy away from any prediction like that. Here's what this player is going to be like in the next month. I got no idea. I really don't. Nobody does. It could turn out to be a case, though, where Lowe is the best of their prospects who gets the regular opportunity this season, comparing him to Vidal Brujan and Taylor Walls. Taylor Walls is a great defender. I don't know how much Taylor Walls is going to hit in the long run. I really have some concerns about what we're seeing short term from him. But I do think, as I look at this Rays team, they have another guy, Jonathan Aranda, who's kind of interesting not because he's a well-rounded prospect, but because he just seems like the kind of guy that's going to hit. And it's just a question of where they're going to fit him into their puzzle uh, as someone that can maybe give this offense a boost. They've been below average as a team so far in terms of WRC+. There's still a little bit too much swing and miss in this lineup. And perhaps someone like Aranda can emerge to be part of the solution. I could see him maybe falling into more of a, a part-time sort of role with all the mixing and matching the Rays do. But I'm intrigued by what I've seen, at least from afar. Yes, I would agree with that. I think that um, we should also, we were talking about, I had to think for a second, we were talking about the Angels. That was, what, 20 minutes ago? It shows you about how well my memory is working at this point. Very few clubs are in the position, that a better position than the Rays, to be able to go out and make some kind of mid-season acquisition using the fruits of their farm system. I mean, Aranda is, I had a couple of scouts I talked to this winter who were very, very high on the bat. They've got a lot of those guys. They've got a lot of surplus of guys like that. They and the Dodgers are in the best spots to potentially go out and make some kind of impact acquisition. And I think especially if you're the Rays, you're not going to go out and acquire the $25 million a year guy, but maybe you can get a guy who's a little lower salary, a little more service time left because you have more prospects, better prospects. And the Rays can legitimately look in their system and say, yeah, we got these guys who project as regulars in a lot of places. They're just not going to play for us. I, you know, I wonder what they're. Vidal Bruhan's got a tough time, tough path to playing time there. I'm not saying they should trade him. I think they should make playing time for him. But you know, that's also a guy where every other club in baseball just about says that guy's a starter for us. So the Rays just they have guys like that kind of coming out of their ears where they could potentially put together a pretty good package. Yeah, Curtis Mead, another guy that's like, he hits. Don't know where he's going to play defensively, but he hits, and that might work for someone else. He's at double-A right now. So uh, really curious to see what moves they end up making. And I think you're, you're dead on. I mean, usually the Rays are not the kind of team that are thinking about adding the highest salary expiring free agent that you can get at the trade deadline. It's more of the longer-term move, the tougher-to-predict sort of move that they're going to actually pull off. C.J. Abrams is back up. And what we saw at the beginning of the season, I think, was not entirely surprising when you consider how much time he has missed in the minors due to injuries. Goes down to AAA, hits 314, gets on base at a 364 clip. He popped seven homers in 30 games, was stealing bases again. He's 10 for 13 as a base stealer, had the K rate under 20%. Didn't walk a ton, but that's really picking nits in a player that was 16% better than league average as a 21-year-old at AAA. I think that tells us a lot. With Machado now hurt, fortunately not as bad as it initially appeared, Tatis still down, Abrams gets another look. Can it be different this time around? Should we expect it to be different this time around given what you'd seen from him prior to this brief stretch in the big leagues that he had earlier this season? My concern, forgive me, I think we actually talked about this the first time around too. He was not making particularly good quality contact. It's not that the at-bats were bad 
uh, you know, he wasn't walking a ton, but I'm not terribly concerned about that, particularly because he wasn't striking out that much uh, in that brief sample. It was only 23 games. I mean, it was up the first time around. My issue was, concern was, he wasn't, the contact he got wasn't good. He was not hitting the ball hard enough. He is a slighter framed player. He is he has not really filled out yet physically. I do think he is going to actually come into some power because I think the swing is there and he can certainly show it to you at times. He can certainly show it in BP to get to that in games, though he's going to have to get stronger. And I don't think there's reason to expect, yeah, he did go down to AAA and he showed quite a bit more power. Also a pretty great place to hit for power, not just El Paso, but that whole part of the Pacific Coast League. Do I really think he's a different player this time around? Hey, I hope so. I wouldn't bank on it. For him to be able to put on the right kind of muscle to fill out like that in the month plus that he was gone, it is improbable. I would I want to say it's impossible, but it is really unlikely that we're going to see much that's different from him. I hope I'm wrong. I love CJ Abrams as a player. I love his long-term upside. My guess is we, we see a lot of the same. I think where I would try to grade him if I were watching for improvement is watching that O-swing percentage. It was over 40% when we saw him earlier this season. That seems pretty out of step with the type of approach that he's going to have. That might improve first. That might bring up the average in the OBP, make him a more viable option for the bottom part of the lineup. He can play good defense. And then, yeah, you get to the offseason, you add some bulk, and then next season, maybe you start to see improvement in the hard hit rate and the barrel rate. Like That would, that would not surprise me at all. And if it plays out that way, it doesn't mean that C.J. Abrams is a disappointment. It's this guy's really young for the level. Just be impressed that he's here and able to hold his own potentially by season's end. The Pirates called up Leover Piguero and then quickly sent him back down. And I'm more just curious what you think about his fit in the Pirates' long-term build. Where, where do you see him kind of getting in the next two to three years as they figure everything out in Pittsburgh? You should just tease this episode as Keith and Derek talk about a recent Pirates shortstop call-up from the Miners. Everyone's <laughs> going to know we're talking about Pagaro, right? Obviously. <laughs> um, I thought we were just going to talk about O'Neill Cruz for 55 minutes. What is going on here? I actually like Pagaro as a prospect. I mean, if O'Neill Cruz is really going to stay at shortstop, and we've discussed that's the biggest shortstop in baseball history, the odds are he doesn't stay there. However, Pirates are probably at least going to give him an extended shot there, which does block Piguero. I like Piguero, though. I like the swing. I actually kind of like the approach. He hasn't walked. He's not walking enough, especially for that profile of player. I also think he's another guy in the C.J. Abrams category of a guy who just needs to get stronger. And he's already gotten somewhat stronger than he was when they first got him from Arizona. So that shows you how slight he was originally. But I, I, I see enough in the swing to the ability to stay back on some off-speed stuff, to pick that pick that up a little bit out of the pitcher's hand and make a little adjustment to his timing. I, I, I think it's there. I think he's going to be a big league regular at shortstop, maybe a chance to be a little bit more of one. I don't think he was – I mean, nobody seems to think he was ready for the call-up just now. I think he's got – he's definitely got to fill out some – but he may also have some time, right? O'Neill Cruz is not going anywhere anytime soon. And honestly, as even as somebody who has long thought, I cannot imagine O'Neill Cruz stays at shortstop as a six-seven guy. If nothing else, you worry about his back getting hurt because it's a long way to the ground to pick up a ground ball when you're six foot seven. But you know what? Play him there every day for the rest of the season. And there's no rush on Piguero. Let Piguero finish the year. I saw him with Altuna a couple weeks ago. 
Let him finish in Altoona. Let him spend most of next year in AAA. There is zero rush for Pittsburgh. I'm thinking maybe they need to have uh, Yoga Day with O'Neill Cruz in Bradenton next spring. <laughs> Fan engagement. I think people could see that as a possible win-win yes, opportunity. Yes, O'Neill Cruz doing downward dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what people were expecting when they turned on this podcast. Last prospect-related question for today, at least. Yvonne Herrera getting an opportunity in St. Louis right now. Injuries piling up behind the plate. I think some people are just wondering, is he the long-term replacement for Yadier Molina in St. Louis? Is he a clear, everyday catcher in the long run, even if he's obviously not Yadier Molina? Because very few players are like that. He is for me. And I think the Cardinals told us all that they thought Herrera was the long-term replacement when they dealt Carson Kelly for Paul Goldschmidt, obviously a deal that has also worked out extremely well for them. But Herrera has, he's generally been young for his levels. He has always shown a really good idea of the strike zone. He's always projected to, for me, at least above average power down the road. He is more than good enough defensively. I, I absolutely think that's their long-term catching replacement for Molina. I believe they see him that way. You know, they're in that tough situation that like the Royals are in, for example, with Salvador Perez. Perez is younger, obviously. But Perez, after a sort of outlier season last year, looks like he's kind of reverted back to the player he had been before. And they have MJ Melendez, who should be their catcher of the future. How do you work those guys in? And I hope that the Cardinals, who generally just been very good at managing this part of uh the you know, player transition, I don't know what you call it, that that sort of phase of the game, I think they'll find a good way to do it. However, I would, re- you know, you hope that there's a plan in place that we don't see necessarily from the outside where Molina understands, especially as, you know, any year could be Molina's last year. He hasn't actually said this is last year, but a lot of people are acting like it might be. Um, you know, say that, hey, while you're here, this guy's your, your replacement Please work with him. Impart your knowledge to him. You hope that they're setting that up because if for no other reason than you would hate to be Yvonne Herrera and, you know, say that it's next year, opening day, he's their starting catcher. Oh, good luck. You know, like Yanni or Molina, there's like Bill Dickey and Yogi Berra and Johnny Bench all rolled into one. Good luck replacing that guy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And by the way, we're not ducking O'Neill Cruz talk at all. We've just talked about him a lot on this show before. We, we just can't see him because we're not tall enough. Well, I can see him, but the thing about O'Neill Cruz, he does hit the ball extremely hard. That was the thing that jumped off the page last year in the handful of games he played, right? He had a max exit velo of like 118, which, as Sarah put it, is in the Stantonian range, or it, it's in the only those two guys on the Yankees hit the ball like that. And maybe Vlad Jr. There's a short list of guys that can hit the ball that hard. All of it's probably going to come down to how well he controls the strike zone. And these same concerns we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about Cruz in this show, they're obviously not going away. He didn't shrink. So it's a big zone. It's a lot of plate coverage that is necessary to, to deal with big league pitching. So it would not be surprising at all to see growing pains, but it's going to be fun to watch along the way. I'd be I'd be shocked if we're sitting here a month from now and Cruz struck out 40% of the time and earned a, a quick demotion back to AAA. I don't think that's the most likely outcome here, even though it's always a concern with any prospect coming up and, and getting that first prolonged opportunity. Oh, yeah, I'm not worried about... I don't think he's going back down basically for anything at this point. 
I think he will be up the rest of the season. I think they will live with him with his struggles. Also, for a guy who's that big, he's a pretty good idea. Strike zone, he's got great plate coverage. He's got bat control. He's pretty tooled up. Like The other six, seven guys we typically talk about are, you know, Frank Howard and Richie Saxon or this, you know, the Aaron Judge sort of real outlier. You know, Aaron Judge is very athletic. He is a very different sort of athlete than O'Neill Cruz. O'Neill Cruz is a unicorn. We have no historical comps for him at all. And that makes it extremely difficult for you know, folks who, I would say, particularly if you're, say, like R&D, right? You're trying to, when you're trying to do projections for players, yes, you're looking at their actual performance. That should be the number one variable. But you're also looking at what is the history of players like this, who look like this, who do this, who play like this. There's nobody in the database who looks like him. The only 6-7 player ever to play shortstop in the major leagues was Joel Guzman, who stunk. Yeah. There's no comparison for this guy. Six, seven players don't run nearly as fast as O'Neill Cruz can run. No. That's the other part of his game that I think will be stunning to people as they get eyes on him. Yep. It is in, they don't also have 80 arms, right? He's got the hardest by velocity infield throw of the season. And one of the, Sarah told me on the podcast, my podcast this week, one of the hardest ever recorded. They just don't exist. Now, it doesn't – I will sort of walk that back one second, right? It does not automatically make you a good player. You do things that like that that players haven't done before. It makes you more interesting than good. It can Those can be contributing factors. I believe O'Neill Cruz is going to be very good. You believe O'Neill Cruz is going to be any good. We are not telling the entire story here. And there is, I think, still reason to, to wonder, it, particularly what is this guy's ultimate position? To me, is number one question about this guy. What is the eventual position? If you don't believe he's a shortstop, which history at least says that he's not, then where do you put him? I, I think center field. You run like this, you throw like this, you put this guy in center field, he might be outstanding. Um, and, you know, Brian Reynolds is probably going to get traded. I think we talked about that on the pod. Was it last week? Like, that's, there could be an opportunity there. But I also fully acknowledge if you're the Pirates, you leave him at shortstop because if you leave him at shortstop, he might be MVP level good. Um, particularly if he can play just even average defense and then do all these other things we're talking about. Yeah, no downside in trying to see if he can do it and making that decision you know, a year from now or two years from now because there are plenty of other spots that O'Neill Cruz can pick up if shortstop doesn't work out. And the Pirates, you know, they're getting better, but they're not going anywhere anytime soon either. A minor trade that caught my eye, Willie Calhoun to the Giants. All right, so we finally have it. We have Willie Calhoun in a new organization. He got his wish. It's an organization that's had... Good bit of success taking you know, players that just didn't have it figured out previously and, and turning them into very productive contributors. Mike Yastrzemski is a good example of that. I think we're seeing that from Tyro Estrada this year. What do you think about Willie Calhoun as a hitter? They also picked up Yermin Mercedes, and you think about those two guys as sort of positionless guys that should be able to hit a little bit. A little surprised to see them both there, but they would fit as a possible platoon if they're going to end up platooning that DH spot. Mm-hmm. I am – look, Willie Calhoun is a DH, and that's always been my main objection to him um, as a just sort of what's the overall potential value. I think there's probably more bat than what we've seen so far, but also Willie Calhoun's really small, and guys with that profile who are not otherwise particularly athletic, it's tough. Odds are against them. Calhoun is not – He's not a runner. He does not have, he's not a particularly fast twitch guy. It's more strength than anything else, which is impressive when he's, he's listed at 5'8". I have met him. 
he's probably closer to 5'6", which is my height. It's tough to be that kind of hitter and get to power. I'm not saying he can't do it, but it, yeah, the recent history, at least, is it's pretty limited. The five, eight, and under hitters we've seen who have shown some kind of power are more like the Alex Bregmans, right? Where it is more, much more of a sort of well-rounded package hitter first who comes into more exit velocity as he gets stronger. Those line drives out to the gaps, become more home runs, also just a better overall athlete. Now, I, I agree with you. If somebody can get something extra out of Willie Calhoun, Giants are probably a pretty good bet for that. Um, wouldn't wouldn't surprise me if he went there and found a role as a platoon DH. Also, they're just kind of Gabe Kapler's the kind of manager who looks at players and roster usage differently than most other teams and could maybe find a niche for a Willie Calhoun. I think one thing to, you know, Giants fans can at least approach this kind of, it's a blank slate, right? The Rangers fans had been waiting for, this was the guy who we got for, was the U Darvish trade, right? Yeah, it's the Darvish trade. Right, which God, that's forever ago. But you know the expectations they had for Calhoun between that and just folks who were honestly just scouting the stat lines, he was probably never going to live up to those expectations. Now for the Giants, if you're a Giants fan, eh, a free Willie Calhoun, I'll take one of those. Yeah, take a chance because he right? might actually be at least an above-average hitter. If you use him correctly, that can be a lift for for a team like that. I just like how, as an organization, they seem to focus on. The things that players can do well and not obsess over the things that players just don't do, right? Yeah, so he's a bad runner. He doesn't have a good position defensively. Okay, but he can hit. They, they see something in that profile. They believe he can hit. Probably the same kind of thinking, at least, with that Mercedes edition as well. Uh, this uh, interleague series happening this week inspired a Twitter poll, which then inspired a podcast question that I'm going to throw to you. Between the Nationals and the Orioles, which of those franchises will be the next to win a playoff series? And I think... There's one snap answer that a lot of people have as they think about the question. It's probably the Orioles. I'm curious if you're on board with the masses on this one. I would have actually said the Nationals even before that. And it's not. The Orioles are doing a better job in their rebuild. They have a much better farm system. I think they're doing a lot of things correctly. There are two reasons I say the Nationals. One is the just the challenge of the division. Um, the Orioles are always going to be fighting uphill, fighting four teams that are just currently ahead of them, three of which are much better funded. And the Nationals owners, at least for right now, if they get a little bit better, they're going to go spend money. They will absolutely go and spend to make the club better. I don't think we necessarily know that, that that's true for the Orioles. We have not really seen them spend anything like that. We will at some point. I, they have to. God, I would hope so. I would hate to be an Orioles fan, have them build this good farm system, bring Adley Rutschman to the majors and DL Hall and eventually Grayson Rodriguez and then ownership being like, yeah, no, we're good. We're good. We're not going to spend any money. We're just going to play those guys. I mean, that would be incredibly frustrating. So I'd like to believe that's not the case, but we know for a fact the Nationals will spend at some point. They're not going to stink for five years. That's just not going to be. They'll get a couple of good prospects get close to the majors and the Rizzo will go out and he'll go tell ownership, right? I want to sign these three guys and we're going to contend again. I 100% believe that, that, that they will end up doing. In some ways, the nationals, I feel like did something that the angels are trying to replicate where they, they seem to do more in free agency than a lot of other teams. And they, they had success. They won a world series doing that. But I think that's one of the harder ways to actually win. You know, they invested in, big free agent pitching. And they obviously landed two first overall picks that were no-brainer 
franchise improving picks and then they crushed it on the Juan Soto signings. They do other things well too. But most teams that try and replenish that way get punished for it. They don't get that ultimate World Series reward the way the Nats actually do. I think that the path for the Nationals, it's still easier in the long run. The Orioles will have to deal with the AL East. They always have. And the Yankees aren't going to stop spending and trying. The Red Sox are the Red Sox. The Rays are the Rays. And the Blue Jays are flying high right now, too. And they're going to spend. They're. I mean, it's very clear. The Blue Jays currently, at least, ownership is spending. So four organizations in their division that do a lot of things very well, I think, make it even more difficult. And I'm not trying to make Orioles fans feel bad at all. It was just one of those things that I thought was kind of a compelling question where it's easy to go one way, but you might be surprised the way that that actually turns out. Uh, One last thing before we go, you've got a new mock draft up, and it sounds like there still isn't a good feel for what the Orioles are actually going to do with that first pick. So what I wrote, for folks who haven't seen it, mock draft, I have this, what I believe the, these teams are going to do. First 30 selections. It's not what I would do. It's what I think the teams are going to do. However, the Orioles, Mike Elias in general, going back to when he was the Astros too, they don't share what they're doing. In fact, they even don't share it much within their own organization. There's probably only about three people there who will know who the Orioles are taking until the draft broadcast starts about five minutes before the pick. Then we'll finally find out word who they're actually taking. And I mean, that's fine, right? That's their right. I personally am not like, I don't, you know, I've been in draft rooms. I don't think the cloak and dagger stuff matters all that much, especially for the top couple of picks. No one's changing their pick because you like a player. Also you pick first, right? No matter who you say, if you're taking Drew Jones, which is who I gave them in this mock draft, if you're taking Drew Jones, then so what? No one else can take Drew Jones instead because you pick first. You get whoever you want. They don't do this. Part of what they don't reveal is there's some negotiating strategy there that I kind of understand. Whatever. This is how they do things. We're not going to know. So every one of our mock drafts, including the ones that I do, and I think MLB just did one too, where they had Termar Johnson, another great, great high school position player prospect going first overall. I don't know if Jonathan... Mayo or, or Jim Callis did that particular mock draft, but they had one up the other day. We don't know. We pretty much know who the few players are who the Orioles are looking at. We have no idea which one or ones of those they prefer. We'll just do the best we can. But I, I, you know, I don't like to guess on my mock draft. There's nothing else I can do. We just don't know. And so, and that is going to be true. The draft is three and a half weeks away. That is going to be true right up until draft day. Whatever my last mock draft is, which we'll have. I hope the best information I can possibly get on which players those teams are after. We're still guessing on number one because nothing leaks out of there. I uh, had some some flashes of what trouble with the curve two might be. It might be a scout working for the Orioles finding out in that five minute window before the pick is actually in that the org's going to take someone they shouldn't take first overall. So the scout has to find a way to convince the GM in five minutes. It's going to be a short movie not yeah, to use true. the pick that way. Yeah, that's... Uh, Trouble with the Curve is a documentary. Call me up, Hollywood. I'm, I'm ready. Put me in. We have to go. Uh, you should check out the mock draft. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can do that. Get a subscription for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. You can read Keith's mock. Check out all the other great coverage we have for all the sports happening right now. Lots of good stuff. On Twitter, Keith is at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Have a great weekend. 